This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Zohar Palti is a career Israeli intelligence officer serving in the Israeli Defense Forces and the Mossad. He also served as the head of the Political Military Bureau at the Israeli Ministry of Defense, a job from which he just retired. I just sat down with Zohar to talk about his amazing career and about where the Middle East is going in the years ahead. Just a quick note to our listeners. My friend Zohar was overseas when we taped this. We had to overcome a few technical issues. So thanks for being patient with us. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Zohar, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is it is always good to talk to you. I'm really excited about our conversation. So thank you, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here, and thank you so much, Michael. So, so Zohar, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about your career, and then we'll get into to some substantive issues. But I want to start with your career, and uh, you you join the Israeli Defense Forces um, as an 18-year-old, and you very quickly become an intelligence officer. And I'm wondering if becoming an intelligence officer was something that the IDF chose for you, or was it something that you raised your hand and said, I want to be an intelligence officer? How did that work? So, uh, as a matter of fact, I started in the armor course, and uh, quite, as you said, quite uh, after a very short time, uh, they decided that uh, it's better that I move to the intelligence course. And I was a couple of months uh, as a 
simple soldier and then I went to an officer course. After one and a half year, I was an officer, intelligence officer in the northern uh, front when all the IDF used to spend in Lebanon, it was like 84. And since then, I'm in the intelligence, uh, combination of the military intelligence and of course the Mossad later on. And this is it. So Zohar, you, you spend nearly a quarter century, a little bit less than a quarter century um, as an intelligence officer in the IDF. And obviously much, much happened in those 25 years two intifadas with the Palestinians, multiple wars in Lebanon against the PLO and against Hezbollah, wars in Gaza against Hamas. I'm wondering if you can share any memories of your time in the IDF with our listeners. I think the generation that, uh, like me, that was recruited to the army at 82 uh, is very much uh, under the influence of our staying in Lebanon for 17, 18 years. And the fact that we uh, had to serve over there and thank uh, to Prime Minister, uh, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak that took us out in 2000. This is one milestone from my military service. The other one, of course, is the the city chief in the military intelligence, the second intifada. It was horrible to have like dozens of suicide attacks in a democratic country like us in the main cities like Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, Hadera, and all the other ones. That was a defining moment for us. 2007, um, the attack on the Syrian nuclear reactor. I think this is the main milestones that I can uh, draw right now. Um, you actually, Zohar, you actually spent time in Lebanon, is that correct? Yeah, I was an intelligence officer of an infantry brigade. Uh, the Golani Brigade, and uh, I was the Deputy Intelligence Officer of the Northern Division of Israel that spread all over the Lebanese border, and I served in other operational units in uh, the military intelligence. I spent a lot of time in Lebanon. So Zohar, in, in 2006, in the middle of that second Lebanon war, somebody named Meyer Degan, who we're going to come back to in a second, um, then the director of Mossad, brings you to Mossad to run the counterterrorism division in the intelligence branch. Then Meyer makes you the head of the strategic analysis division in Mossad. Um, and then Tamir Pardo, who is the successor director to Meyer Degan, nominates you to be the director of intelligence, the person in charge of all of the analysis at Mossad. And that's where that's where you and I really worked closely together during my time as head of analysis at CIA and then as the deputy director. And I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about that that period of time. The first is just to talk a little bit about Meyer Degan, who I met many times and I really found to be a remarkable man. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about Meyer a little bit. Sure, no doubt that Mayer was uh, a remarkable guy. And uh, mainly, uh, he was a commander. He loved the people. He came from the army, used to be a major general in the Israeli army. And then uh, Prime Minister Sharon nominated him to be the director of Mossad. The gun brought the spirit, first and foremost, is the people. And you, Michael, as former DI, you understand how important is the people. They actually 
the ones that are doing the job. They are the ones that are leading the organization. And Mary gave them so much respect. He used to sit with all the analysts like two hours every week to listen to them, to debate with them as equal. That's one. Second issue, Dagan gave the priority to the Mossad. First and foremost, counter-proliferation and mainly the Iranian issue. And the second issue is counter-terrorism to foil any attempt to hurt, of course, Israelis and Jewish all over the world and in Israel, and of course, to help to our allies and some friendly country otherwise. And we've done a remarkable job. All the intelligence services leading by Dagan. Dagan was a man of his word. He was courage enough, not only in the battlefield, he was courage enough in order to say exactly what he thought in closed rooms, whether the politician or the decision makers like it or whether or not. And no doubt, a really, really impressive guy. Meyer was there at the birth of the State of Israel, wasn't he? Mary, as a matter of fact, there was a very famous picture in his office of a child that is raising uh, his hands, uh, a Jewish, of course, uh, during the Holocaust. And the guy gave us the sense he came, he was an immigrant uh, from East Europe, and he gave us the sense, guys, never again. And that's why he um, tell the Mossad guys, our first priority is uh, to prevent from a country like Iran, for example, country that are saying that they want to eliminate the state of Israel, the slogan was never again. And the Mossad, his point of view was that the Mossad have to lead, to, uh, lead all the efforts in order to foil the Iranian attempts to get a nuclear, uh, military nuclear uh, capabilities. And this week we are, you know, there is, yesterday it was the memorial day for the Holocaust over here. And no doubt that uh, the legacy that Dagan gave us in this issue uh, is still here. So Zohar, I think that's a great transition to the second question I wanted to ask you about uh, during your time as Director of Intelligence at Mossad. And that's that's the Iranian nuclear program, um, something you and I worked very closely on during the time we were working on it in 2010, 2011, 2012. Iranians were moving rapidly forward on, on uranium enrichment, expanding their program, deepening their sophistication. And you were the senior intelligence analyst, Israeli intelligence analyst in the room for discussions about whether Israel should attack Iran's nuclear program in 2011, 2012. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about how close Israel actually came during that period to attacking Iran and talk a little bit about the role of intelligence in that discussion and how important it was. First of all, you know, uh, Israel is a democratic country and by law, we are under the instruction of the Israeli government. Till the Israeli government is not taking decision, the culture in Israel is saying that in a closed room, the intelligence community is not only allowed, must say whatever they think. And my job in that room as the director of intelligence was to crystallize hundreds and um, dozens of hours internal discussions 
with my analysts and with the professionals in the Mossad and the inter in, in the intelligence community all over Israel and to try to crystallize the bottom line to the decision makers whether this is the right time to do it or not. We used to be very close because we got an instruction back then from our decision makers to prepare ourselves and we did. But at the same time, there have been discussions all the time whether we should do it or not. And based on the intel that back then we used to have, uh, we knew that the Iranians are doing uh, quite a good job regarding the enrichment program. And back then they have uh, several of SQs, if you remember. But at the same time, we didn't have any indication that they're actually trying to build uh, the bomb. And we said that as long as they're not actually uh, weaponizing and don't have what we call the weaponized group, that orchestrate all the components together, uh, we should wait with that, and this is not the right moment to do it. Right now, a decade after it, I can say that probably the intel was right back then. And, and Zohar, is it safe to say that, that intelligence was um, a, a very important factor in the decision-making of the prime minister and the rest of the security cabinet at that time? I think even more than that, the intelligence was a crucial one. By the way, always in the Israeli uh, system, the intelligence is crucial. Any uh, meeting, any gathering, starting always with intel picture, whether it's a tactical one or whether it's a strategic one. And the change or the things that are not changing in the intel picture, they are part of the discussion at the right moment when we are doing the gathering with the, our policymakers. And I think it was a crucial, uh, and the intel were very, very much influential regarding the issue whether to do it or whether not. And I have to add something more than that. And it's great that we have close friends and allies like you, Michael, and with the agency and, and with other partners uh, that we have in Europe, that we can uh, share so many things together. And, uh, and it's so important to all of us. Zohar, just one more career question. You finished your career as the head of the Political Military Bureau of Israel's Ministry of Defense, you know what what took you from uh, what took you there, and then what's the role of the Ministry of Defense's Political Military Bureau? What was your job? Uh, in American terms, it's very uh, it's like equivalent, not in the scales. Of course, America is much better, much bigger than us. Uh, to the to the position of the Undersecretary for Policy in the Pentagon, meaning everything that regarding the policy of the Ministry of Defense was under my portfolio, and of course to keep uh, the outstanding relationship and connection first and foremost that we have with the United States of America, and mainly with the Pentagon because DoD our uh, the Minister of Defense is working with the DoD, and of course with the uh, American uh, Army, SATCOM, UCOM, and all the other ones. And all the other Minister of Defense around the world, that you're the one that is holding the relationship, keeping the strategic dialogues and things like that. This is a portfolio of this uh, job, if I'm trying to crystallize that. And of course, one of the best, um, the best thing that I had during the last two years is to implement the Agbram Accords. And this is a game changer and to establish Center uh, defense relationship between us and the Arab countries, mainly, mainly the Gulfis, and of course uh, the Moroccans. So Zohar, is it is it 
safe to say that the Abraham Accords took the relationship between Israel and um, some of the Gulf countries from the security realm, which it had been growing, into the political realm and into the public realm. Is that a fair statement? It's exactly uh, exactly how you phrase it. It's so beautiful. And this time we learned a lesson from, I think we're trying to learn the lesson from some of the mistakes that we've done with Egypt and Jordan decades ago. And I'm so happy as a security guy to see that the first and foremost was to establish the civilian side, the commercial flight, the commercial flights, the private sector and things like that. And only then came the Minister of Defense and all the other ones. It's, it seems to me that we are, we are building it right. It's peace between the people uh, with an open uh, heart and open mind. It's, it's really amazing to see how many direct flights we have right now to Marrakesh and to Gaza and to, of course, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. It's really, it's for a guy like me to land with an Al airplane with the flag of Israel on the tail. Uh, many, many years I was landing into those places, not exactly with Israeli flags. It's great. And uh, we're very proud about it and we're grateful. Uh, to our prime minister back then that used to do it, of course, to the Americans, to the president, and uh, mainly the courage that the Arab leaders, mainly the UAE guys and the Bahrainis and the Moroccans uh, took a very, very bold decisions, and it seems to me it's great. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Zohar Palti. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So, Zohar, I want to turn to some more substantive issues here. And first one I want to ask you about is Israel's approach to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's been some criticism of Israel's reluctance not to more strongly rebuke Russia. Can you kind of put that into context for us? First of all, there is no words to express how devastating the situation is. And of course, that every uh, person that see whatever what happening is right now in Ukraine, uh, you can be, you can ignore from that. And it's uh, really devastating. But at the same time, you have to understand that Israel is in a unique place. On one hand, we have so many balls in the airs. Right now, it's the last days of the Ramadan. We're two days before the independence. Two days ago, three days ago, there's been a rocket that was launched from Lebanon. At the same time, I heard in the news that there was a courtesy visit of some air force in Syria dealing with Iranians uh, and Hezbollah targets. Simultaneously, we have some tension right now in the Temple Mount. At the same time, we have challenge from Gaza. 
I think that not in every, let's say, security issue that happening in the world, Israel have to be in the in the focus. Uh, we have to do whatever we can in order to help from humanitarian point of view to the Ukrainians. They are uh, friends of us, and uh, we send uh, medical support, and we send helmets, and we send so many other humanitarian aid. And it seems to me uh, that we should uh, continue to do things like that, but not everything should be judged, whether it's a military aid, this one or another. I'm counting on NATO, I'm counting on you guys, I'm counting about the European countries, uh, that they're doing so many things, and a good one over here, and uh, we will take care about business over here in the neighborhood, and we have a rough neighborhood over here. So, Har, I want to spend most of our time um, on Iran. And let me let me start by asking you about the threat that Iran poses to Israel. How do you how do you see that threat? First of all, there is the Iranian people and there is the Iranian regime. With the Iranian people, as you know, we have a long history and we have nothing against the Iranian people. And I hope that they don't have nothing against us. And as we say over here in the, in the, in the neighborhood, inshallah, one day we'll come back to be friends of them. The main problem right now is the way they're running this regime, that uh, they are really fanatics. And I spoke uh, earlier regarding the Holocaust, the Memorial Day that we just have uh, a day ago. And uh, Israel will never allow to any country around the world to threaten our existential and our uh, rights to live freely in Israel. And the Iranian regime possess pose a main problem to Israel by saying that he wants to eliminate the states of Israel out of the map. We take it personally. And we have a legacy, as I said before, never again. And we had two prime ministers in our history that... Uh, paved the way for us with our doctrine. First one was Begin in 81 with the Osirak uh, reactor in Iraq. The second one was Prime Minister Ulmert in 2007 with the Syrian nuclear reactor. And if Iran will challenge us, we know exactly what we have to do. This is regarding the nuclear issue. The other issue that is, of course, the regional one and the fact that the Iranians are behind so many terrorist attacks in the last two, three decades about you as an Americans in Iraq, in Afghanistan, so many lives of your people they took. They're challenging right now your allies and our friends in the Gulf. September 14 attack in 2019 against the Saudis were vicious one. They're helping the Houthis, they're helping the Shia militias in Iraq. They're using surface-to-surface missiles, cruise missiles, UAVs. The Iranian is destabilizing the region. And uh, over here, uh, this is the main problem that we have with Iran right now. If you take the Iranian issue and the Iranian aggressive from the region, it seems to me that everybody, mainly the Arab countries, would be happy. So, Zohar, I'd love to ask you, the, the Biden administration is negotiating um, with the Iranians on a possible return to the 2015 nuclear agreement those negotiations have been on again, off again. I wonder what your view is about whether we should return to that agreement or not, and why. 
First of all, it seems to me that the Americans have uh, their own policy in order to decide what what is the American interest and what not. Um, I don't think that I'm in a position to say to the Americans what to think and what to do. I can reflect the Israeli perspective in that matter. And uh, we'll go back to the agreement in 2013 and 2015, the intermediate agreement and then the final agreement in 2015. Back then in 2013, and uh, I think you've been back then in the business, in 2011-12, you've done great. The sanctions used to work beautifully, and the Iranian used to lose between 60 to $80 billion a year. And we came to you back then, and we said, guys, we're not against an agreement or something like that, but it should be a good agreement. And a good agreement, uh, don't rush into it. And I think it was back then a mistake to give the Iranians um, advanced centrifuges. Uh, back then, they used to have only the IR-1 and only the start of the IR-2. And uh, the agreement gave them uh, the permission or the authority to speed centrifuges of the IR-4, IR-6, and IR-8 this is eight times and 10 times faster than there are once. And right now, so many, not so many years after the, the agreement, uh, the Iranians are uh, sadly in a quite impressive uh, achievement regarding the, the enriching program. And this is not for them. It's not a bottleneck anymore. This administration, when he came, he spoke about longer and stronger agreement. I don't see right now not longer and not stronger. And it seems to me that we have a lot of question marks, and I don't know all the details. That's why I don't know to tell you whether it's a good one or bad one or something like that. But no doubt that we have some question mark regarding whether we're running or willing to compromise about some of these issues. The other ones is they're running and dragging uh, their feet. And um, for the last couple of months, we see that they're running taking advantage that this uh, negotiation is stretching and uh, we're in a situation that I'm not sure that uh, I like what I see right now. Zohar, how's the, how's the region, how's Iran different? How's the region different in a world in which there is an agreement and in a world in which there isn't an agreement? Sadly, regarding the, yeah, that's a tough one. But sadly, if I'm trying uh, to give you uh, a professional answer, I don't see right now something substantial regarding the region. I'm not speaking right now about the nuclear program, about the region uh, that will make the the difference. Meaning, they're running aggressive uh, with agreements and without an agreements. And the Iranians are using the Houthis uh, in Yemen, and they're running and using the Iraqi uh, the Iraqi uh, territory in order to compromise the security of the region over here, of course in Syria, of course in Lebanon, with Hezbollah, meaning the Iranians right now are doing a serious terrorist attacks and challenging and compromising the security all over the Middle East. I'm not sure, and over here it's understatement, that an agreement with the Iranian will limit them. On the contrary, we know that the agreement is not about to touch those issues. So I'm not sure that there is a big difference regarding the region. So, so Zohar, I understand the, the regional point, and I agree with 100%. What about on the nuclear front? What's the difference 
in terms of the development of Iran's nuclear program, nuclear weapons program between a deal and no deal? Again, I, I'm not sure that I know all the details because right now nothing revealed yet. I'll give you the best scenario. The best scenario that if we have longer and stronger, if we have um, meaning the international community have the ability through the AIIA um, to monitor around 24-7 with all the technological measures that we have today in 2022, uh, that the inspection can come to which uh, every side they want to uh, monitor 24-7 um, to deal with the open files. All those issues, we have to address them. If the agreement is about to give all these issues, it seems to me it's pretty good. But based on what we understand for the time being, I'm not sure that we have an answer for all of this. If there will be an agreement, and I really doubt at the time being, but then again, let's wait and see. Uh, it's supposed to stop the enriching uh, progress of the Iranians. And right now they are spinning center fruits and enriching to 60%. And of course, uh, to um, 3.5. And I hope that all the material will go out. And this is good. But at the same time, so I have to be uh, very... Uh, concern regarding the fact that uh, this agreement, even if it will be signed five minutes from now, uh, there is a milestone over here. And in like uh, several years from now, in 2020, in uh, 2026, and then in 2031, almost all bets off. And if we think that an agreement will give us a sense that the Iranian issue is behind us, no. Even if there is an agreement, the day after it, we should continue to deal with that and to monitor it and to see that the Iranians are not violating everything. And I doubt it because always the Iranians used to try to deceive. We saw it in the archive. We saw it in other issues. The Iranians are doing really bad things regarding the nuclear issue. So Zohar, you were, you were against attacking Iran in 2012, but you're not against ever attacking Iran. Um, is that safe to say? It's not that we are looking for to attack somebody. The only things that we care is about our family, the existence of Israel, the safetyness of our children, and, of course, the stability in the region. As long as we don't see an imminent threat, like it used to be in 2011-12, we will say always, let's give a chance to other options. And even today, I would say the same. But... At the same time, when we're coming to the moment that we will understand that in two months, three months, two weeks, or something like that, uh, from the time that one day, I hope that it is not kind, it's going to jeopardize our existence, we'll have to operate. There is no doubt. I spoke before about the legacy of Begin in 81 regarding Iraq, 2007 in Syria, and we know if we have to do it the third time, we're willing to do it. Whether we're looking for that, no. Whether it's a must, no. I think that there is a lot of room to the international community to do a lot of things in order to do it. And right now, it seems to me that the international community, after so many months that they gave um, so much room to this negotiation, and the Iranians right now give cold shoulder to the international community, it's about how to stretch the sanctions, to tighten them, 
and to give the Iranian sense, guys, uh, what you see right now, it's key stuff compared to what uh, we have the ability to do. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Uh, Zohar, in the couple of minutes we have left here, wonder if you might want to comment a little bit about the CIA. Um, spent a lot of time working with the organization. Just love your thoughts on the agency. I will be a bit emotional over here because uh, rarely I have a chance to answer about a question like that. And, uh, you know, to be the city chief of my organization with you guys, I was uh, used to have the honor to see you after September 11 and what you've done all over the world with the global war on terrorism. And I think you have a real heroes in the agencies that gave so many uh, hope and protected almost the entire world from the Al-Qaeda and the global jihad phenomena. And uh, your organization uh, uh, deserves so much credit for saving so many lives. And uh, I know that I'm speaking for myself, but I know that a lot of people over here in Israel owes you and, of course, people over here in the region, many Arab countries are uh, obliged. And really, many, many thanks to your people that used to be a hell of a job uh, with counterterrorism. And recently, I have to give the credit to the your intelligence community. I think it's more than the agency. I think it's other agencies as well, but because you ask about the agency, the fact that people used to give such a brilliant intel picture about what's supposed to be with the invasion to Ukraine, chapeau. I mean, in the last years, it wasn't the first priority of no one. And nevertheless, uh, it was a remarkable intel picture. Uh, good job. So Zohar, two, two last questions from me. One is, I want to ask you what you see as the biggest threat to the future of Israel. That's a tough one. And I would say uh, something uh, not natural to me. I don't think that we have something existential right now from the outside. If you ask me and you squeeze me, I'm much more concerned about our internal problems. The fact that uh, I see so much diversity among the Israelis. Uh, not a lot of tolerance among ourselves. Uh, we need to be much more respectful to each other. And if we will know to work always like as a fist, 
and to understand that we have no other place to go. And that uh, at, at the end of the day, we are uh, stuck with each other, no matter our political point of views and things like that. Uh, we can overcome and uh, face again any challenge from the outside. And uh, I think this is the main concern that a lot of us have over here, how we are uh, bridging the gaps between ourselves. Boy, I have exactly the same concern about my own country. Um <laughs> So the last question, Zohar, um, we have a lot of we have a lot of people from the intelligence community, particularly analysts who listen to this program, and we have a lot of uh, college students uh, who also listen to the program who want to be intelligence analysts. And I just want to very quickly ask you, since you spent so much time doing this, what makes a good intelligence analyst? <laughs> you pick it's your question today of uh, the easy one only. <laughs> Analyst, I think, good one. It's a person that rely on a deep knowledge on what uh, what the subject it is uh, uh, responsible. You have to be curious. Sometimes you have to be doubtful. You have to read uh, a lot. Uh, first thing in the morning, you have to read. Last thing before he's going to sleep, you have to read. He is the man. There is no second. Uh, second one to him in the knowledge on the subject that he is uh, responsible he have to be total devoted to the cause um, I think he have to be with the creative thinking and operational one as well to translate the intel into operations he have to be the address from the tactical issues the strategic one that if there is a question that this analyst he is the man you have to give the answers whether it's tactical or whether it's a strategic one you have to know the intelligence community inside his own countries and mainly outside with partners and friends you have to compare notes with them and not to be afraid to said on the contrary not it's more than not to be afraid you have to be encouraged enough to say exactly his professional opinion in closed rooms and to give her recommendations to the policymakers regarding policy. In Israel, we don't have downtown. We don't have something like that. We, from lieutenant, have to give our recommendation to the decision makers, even if it's policy issues. Zohar, that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real honor to have you on the show. And it's always, it's always a a special pleasure of mine to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. And uh, really, best to everybody. That was Zohar Palti. I'm Micah Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, Goal! 
You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement of the restrictions apply.